Turn to the book of Joel. We have started last week a series through the minor prophets. Uh, Again, as I said last week, not because their message was minor, but because uh, they wrote uh, shorter uh, accounts of what God gave them than someone like Isaiah or Jeremiah have written. And so this morning we go to the book of Joel. It is a very short uh, book of three chapters. And as you're finding your spot there, I was thinking this week, what if God declared that we here in the United States would lose everything because of the complicit wickedness in our nation? What would happen if the United States of America lost everything? What would happen if this nation was destroyed? What would happen if all of the agriculture was burnt up? What would happen if there was a famine upon this land? What would happen if there was no food and there was great hunger? There was no electricity, no way to heat. There was no amount of money that could solve this in the great country of the United States of America. What would happen to the faith of God's people? Would there be repentance? Would there be more prayer? Or would we be a people that would harden our hearts towards the things of God? And some of you would want to object right away. But wait, no, we are a Christian nation. God would never do that to this great Christian nation. Yet we read in the book of Hebrews that God disciplines the ones whom he loves. And we also read from scriptures we read today that disasters happen by the divine appointment of God. And therefore, when we look at Joel, it is a prophecy which for many brings great terror. But we must not forget that it also brings to us the truth of God's grace upon his people and his blessing for the people of God. We don't know much about Joel, the prophet. He, uh, we have his name, and, and, and the name is his, his father. And that's all we know. We don't know of a timeline of this. There's arguments and commentaries that say, hey, it happened at this time, and it happened at this time. We know that his message that God gave him to speak was given to the nation of Israel. Joel's name means Jehovah is God or Jehovah is Lord. And the message is to the nation of Israel who has been unrepentant to the things that God has called them to be. The great theme throughout these three chapters is the day of the Lord. And it is the truth of God's wrath and his judgment and that it belongs to him alone. Five times more than any of the prophets in the Old Testament, the greater or the minor, Joel speaks of the day of the Lord from chapter 1 to chapter 3. Five times he clearly states what it is and what he is writing of. And we see in the book of Joel this in every chapter. We see judgment and salvation. We see judgment and salvation to the nation of Israel. We see judgment and salvation in the present through the gospel of Jesus Christ today. And we see judgment and salvation in the future to come. And the day of the Lord, as you read the book of Joel, brings great images of horror, of judgment, of the terror of hell 
that make people shake in their boots. The scriptural truth we see this morning as we look specifically to Joel chapter 2 is that the day of the Lord is coming, bringing judgment to the wicked and salvation to the people of God. I'm going to read a portion of chapter 2 and we will look at the entirety of the book together. Verses 12 through 17, here is what the prophet writes the Lord has given him to state Verse 12 of chapter 2. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? The Word of God. And again, we have the great blessing to read the Word of God recorded for us. And we have the great blessing of the Holy Spirit living in us, God's people, that we can have understanding. And so again, Father, we ask for understanding this morning. Before we look at these specific verses in chapter 2 here, the background is this. If you have not had time to read Joel this week, I'd encourage you to read these three chapters. In Joel chapter 1, there is a devastation that comes to all of the agriculture, everything that is green in the nation where Israel lives And there is a plague of locusts like we cannot imagine that has come. In chapter 2, he describes the different types or the forms of locusts from the the larva state to the the full-grown state. But they eat every single thing that is green. Everything is devastated. Imagine a plague like that in the United States of America. And every single thing that is green is eaten. And there's also not only that that comes with it, but we find also in chapter 1 that there is a lack of rain. And so you have a famine. You have things that are not growing and the people of God facing a great famine across the land. And in it, chapter 1, he calls them to repentance. And the five times that we will point out here this morning that he speaks of the day of the Lord is one in chapter 1. And in verse 15 It says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction for the Almighty it comes. And even though Joel speaks about the day of the Lord to come, which we'll draw our attention to, here in chapter 1, he speaks of that day of the Lord of the nation of Israel being the locust plague that came across and ate everything that the people had hoped to be able to have for food. And in verse 25 of chapter 2, if you look there, God says, my great army which I sent among you, after he describes them, point you to the fact that God sent the plague of locusts upon his own people 
to eat everything that they had planned to do. This devastation God sent, and he says in chapter 2, verse 25, after describing the locusts, my great army which I sent among you, just as when God sent the Assyrians to take the nation of Israel captive, at that time he even said, my army. Wait a minute, the Assyrians, they didn't fear God. No, God sent the Assyrians to come upon his own people that they would repent and turn of their idolatry. As we saw last week in the book of Hosea, the whoring after idols that the nation did and the call to return to the Lord. And it is a continued theme throughout the minor prophets, throughout the major prophets, that the people of God would turn from their sins and repent and turn to the Lord. In chapter 2, speaks of the future coming day of the Lord. There's a great appeal for repentance. And in chapter 3, when you get there, it says the Lord blesses his people with his presence. He blesses his people with spiritual restoration and he brings judgment on the wicked. So let us look at this first point that judgment is coming in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Judgment is coming in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, it says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alert on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, and great and powerful people, their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. The nation of Israel used trumpets to call the people of God when it was time to move out from camp, when it was time to prepare for battle, when they would gather the people for a corporate gathering, a trumpet was used. And here, twice in this chapter, it says, blow the trumpet. Bring the attention of the people of God to what God is stating here through the prophet Joel. It says, blow the trumpet to gather these people because when you read chapter 1, after all of the agriculture is decimated, Joel points out there in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, the people did not repent of their sins, of joining in with the wickedness of the nations around them. It says that their hearts were hardened. The people of God hardened their hearts towards God and this disaster that was upon them. And here, Joel, this is blow the trumpet. He tells them twice to blow the trumpet. Gather the people. Call them to repentance. He says there's a dark day of destruction, of darkness, and of gloom, of thick darkness that is coming. It says it will be like a blackness that's spread across the mountains, that for many it's not a day of hope. It's almost a picture of the day when God came down on Sinai and the people were of great terror and great fear of the dark clouds and hearing the thunderous voice of God. Look at verse 3 here through verse 10 of chapter 2. Here's this description. It says, Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them. 
But behind them, a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots. They leap on the tops of mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, the peoples are in anguish, and all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall, they march each on his way, they do not swerve from their paths, they do not jostle one another, each marches in his path, in his path. they burst through the weapons and are not halted, they leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb up into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief, and it says in verse 10, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Church, this is a terrible, horrible picture of an army that would come upon the people of God, described as this locust that we're reading of in chapter 1 he describes this army and this locust with the same types of descriptions that in verse 3 that this army brings destruction through fire pointing to God's wrath his vengeance upon the wicked in verses 4 through 6 again this picture of how the locusts jump and swarm and move is this description of like armies and chariots and it says that the people's response is they grow pale Maybe this has happened to you in your life before. You've been around someone. They hear the most horrible news of their life and they literally grow pale before you because of some terrifying thing or horrible, devastating news that has happened. This is the picture of the people that are seeing the wrath of God, the coming day of the Lord upon them. And there is great terror. Verse 7 through 9, it speaks of them charging and leaping and running and climbing and entering the homes. And in verse 10, it says, earthquakes, that the sun and moon are dark, stars not shining, chaos. And you may remember, we looked and studied through the book of Luke a year ago. We read Jesus' words of this. And I was reading this week in Matthew chapter 24, and it describes a similar picture. Matthew chapter 24 it says this in verse 29 through 31. <clears throat> Jesus says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Wow, many of the same descriptions that God gave Joel to describe of the coming of the Lord, the judgment upon the people that God is sending. And the call is to God's people then and God's people now to repent of your sins, to turn to the Lord because the day of judgment is at hand Look back at Joel chapter 2, verse 11. 
It says, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And the literal words there, when it says very awesome, it means very terrible. The terrible day of the Lord. For the believer, it's like, yes, I cannot wait for that day to be with the Lord for all eternity. As Joel chapter 3 speaks of the blessings for those who are in Christ and those in the Lord of God's people. But here it says, the very terrible day of the Lord. That is because for all who are lost, all of the wicked, there is no hope for them. And the wrath of God and his vengeance will be upon them for eternity. Turn to Psalm chapter 29. I was reminded as I read in Joel chapter 2 verse 11, a psalm which I, I love to read frequently. It's Psalm 29. It speaks of the voice of God. <clears throat> Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. The voice of the Lord is mighty. To think that God spoke the words, let there be what? Light. And it appeared. The power and the might and the glory of God. Let us not forget how mighty and wonderful and glorious and powerful and sovereign our God is. Because as soon as we begin to forget, just as Hosea charged the people of God, he says, do not forget. He pointed them back to Deuteronomy. And the people did continue to forget. As soon as we forget the glory of God and his power and might, we wallow in the sinfulness and the wickedness of the world. And we stray from him. Let us not forget the powerful, mighty voice of God. And so, therefore, the day of the Lord, as Joel describes it, in the past, in the present, and in the future, is a horrifying, terrible day for many. Actually, in Joel chapter 3, he speaks of multitudes and multitudes that the day that is coming when they will stand before the Lord, the multitudes who will be crushed that day and will be judged and will experience the wrath of God for all eternity. 
Look at verses 12 through 17. The second point is simply return to the Lord. This is what Joel tells the people of God. He's not telling the pagan nations this. That's why, church, we must hear the same message as the people of God today. Return to the Lord. Turn from your sin and follow the Lord. Again, the problem is that in Joel chapter 1 and the devastation that the locusts bring, the people harden their hearts toward God. God's people harden their hearts toward Him. How often do the people of God today harden their hearts when disaster hits their home or disaster hits their nation? How quickly are we to abandon the body of Christ to not be in attendance of the church because of the disastrous things happening in our life and we blame God and we harden our hearts just like the nation of Israel? We must be reminded, as Hosea reminded the people, Our sinfulness, our sins, anger God greatly. He is jealous for his people. And we who chase after idols sin greatly before him. We may not even think about it. As last week, as we described, it may not be putting some wood or stone statue in your house and bowing down and praying to it. But it may be just turning on that show or that, may, that movie. It just may be that work that you so commit your life to over God. It just may be the money and the things and the stuff of this world that we hold as idols. And he says, return to the Lord. They did not understand their need to repent. And I've prayed that as we, as the people of God, knowing the grace of God and the forgiveness of Christ, that we too, though, will repent of our sin in which we are complicit with a nation that is not a Christian nation, but is a pagan nation who has no regard for God. Psalm chapter 103 reminds me and reminds us in verse 8 this, the Lord is merciful and gracious. And it says, Slow to what? Anger. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Do you realize that our sin angers and grieves our Heavenly Father? Because our sinfulness is rooted in our pridefulness that everything is about me, myself, and I over glory to the Lord. Almighty. And therefore, I'm thankful that the Lord is slow to anger, that He's abounding in steadfast love, that He's merciful and gracious, and that He's sent His Son Jesus Christ to save His people from their sins. Because without that, every single person would face the wrath of God and judgment on that great and terrible day. But for the people of God who have faith in Christ alone for salvation, the wrath and the vengeance of the Father has been poured out on His Son, Jesus Christ. And for that, we say thank you, Jesus, for your mercy and your grace upon us. Verse 12 in Joel chapter 2, Joel says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. 
It's a, it's a sense that he's saying, you still have time. You still have time. Return to me with all your heart. God calls for your undivided devotion from your heart, church. And he says, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And then he says in verse 13, and rend your hearts, not your what? Your garments, your clothes. Rending your heart over the sinfulness that God brings to you is not, God, I am sorry I did that. And move on. It's not like when you see a child that says something or does something wrong to another child and you tell them, you need to say you're sorry to them. And the only reason they say they're sorry is because they want to get out of being in trouble. Sorry. And they move on. You know what I'm talking about? And for many of, of us as a people of God, at times our response to God is like that. Sorry, Lord, I did this. But you know what? This is why I did this. There's no rending of our hearts. It's an outward tearing of our garments in that sense. God doesn't want your clothes torn before him. As the nation of Israel, when great sin or the great uh, uh, things done against God would happen, the people, when they were struck by their guilt, they would tear their garments as an outward sign of their hearts being struck. God doesn't want the outward sign. He wants the inward working of your hearts being rent before him over our sins. Therefore, with fasting and with weeping, with mourning, it's like in Luke chapter 18 where the Pharisee and the tax collector, they both go to the temple and they both go to pray. And the Pharisee, Jesus says in Luke 18, he's standing with his hands raised and he says, thank you, Lord, that I am not like that guy, that sinner, that tax collector. Lord, I do all these things for you. Thank you so much that I'm not like that. And it says in Luke 18 verse 13, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that must be our prayer. Jesus goes on to say that he went home justified before the Lord and not the religious man. I was praying this morning that we would not be religious people that have a knowledge about God and have heard the gospel but have never had hearts that are rent over our sin. Hearts that have never believed in faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And I believe we should pray not only for our church, this local gathering here, but the church in our city and the church in our nation, and the church in our world. Joel says in verse 13, Return to the Lord your God. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful. Where, there it is again, slow to what? Anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. He quotes from a book we're going to look at in a couple weeks, the book of Jonah. Jonah states this truth about God after Jonah's all ticked off that God relented from destroying the people of Nineveh that he hated. And he states that, makes that statement about God. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, 
In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 5 and 6, it says, And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. I hope that you see from Deuteronomy and that you see from Joel and that you see from the scriptures that your heart will not be rent over your sin before the Lord by something that you do. This is a work of God. The Holy Spirit open your eyes to the truth of God's word, reminding you of God's word about his holiness and our sinfulness and our need to turn and repent and call on him says that he's the one who circumcises the heart. He's the one who softens the heart. He's the one who saves his people. And therefore, we must pray and ask that he would continue to do that work in us today. Joel chapter 2 verse 14 says, who knows? <laughs> Quotes the king of Nineveh in Jonah chapter 3. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. If you read ahead in Jonah chapter 3, you'll see that Jonah goes in and says, hey, you guys are going to be destroyed. God's going to burn you out. He's going to wipe you out for your sinfulness. And the king says, everyone, fast, cover yourself with sackcloth, pray. And it says, perhaps, who knows, just maybe. God will relent and not bring the disaster upon us. Who knows? <clears throat> God always acts according to his will. And therefore, he may bless instead of destroy. But may we never be surprised if disaster comes upon our life, if trouble comes upon this city or upon this world. Because God is in complete control. And all that he does is for his glory and for his people. He uses difficult situations. We studied the book of James earlier this year that he would bring us through the types of trials that we face so that we would grow in our relationship with Christ. And he's glorified in that. And none of us are praying for disaster, are we? None of us are asking, Lord, would you just rain down some fire on us? Lord, would you just come and do this? Just, no, we don't pray for that. We pray just the opposite. God, would you bless us? Would you bless us so much with so many things? Would you provide for me? Would you do this? Would you give me perfect health? And we pray and ask for these things as Christ taught his disciples to pray. He said, you know, pray for your daily bread. And what's always fascinating to me is how God answers before we ever pray. To think of the number of times the way that God has answered prayers, things that were set in motion before we ever knew to pray for it. And we pray, and a few days later, something happens. You go, wait a minute. They started doing that months or two months ago. I just prayed for that three days ago. And that's because our Father is a loving Father. And He cares for His children. And He provides for them even when they don't know what to ask for. Isn't our God wonderful that he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love? Who knows whether he will turn and relent 
And leave a blessing behind and a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Verse 14. Verse 15 says, call all the people together. Verse 16 says, gather everyone. And it says, consecrate the congregation. It says, gather the elders, gather the little children, even the nursing infants. It says, let the bridegroom uh, leave his room and the bride her chamber. Every single person. This is not a time for the newlyweds to go on uh, their honeymoon. This is not a time to go have this this room over here where all the children are taken care of right there. It says all of the people of God are to gather together in a solemn assembly and plead that God would relent from the disasters, this judgment that he has set out to do. <clears throat> and I thought about this this week. What if every single Christian <clears throat> in Missoula gathered together this week and began to meet all the time and every single day and began to fast and to mourn and weep over our sins and the sins of our nation and of our world? What if that began to happen in the city of Missoula? What if that began to happen among all the Christians in this nation or of this world but, but, but wait, Pastor, I've not done those sins that we're praying that the nation would stop doing. But may I ask you, have you been silent about that? You agree that abortion is murdering thousands of children, millions of children, but do you stay silent about it? <clears throat> do you agree that the wickedness is rampant in our world, that we're allowing it in our schools, in every area of society, but are we complicit by being silent? <clears throat> Come on, pastor, I can't change the wickedness in our nation. I live in Montana, removed from many people. Well, I tell you that Missoula, coming from a very large city in Los Angeles, California, that Missoula is just as wicked as the city of Los Angeles and just as wicked as any city that you can name in this world. We pride ourselves in being a Christian nation, but we are a nation that is pagan that has some Christians in it. And therefore, we must return to the Lord. And we must be a people of prayer. And we must call upon the Lord that he would save his people from their sins, that he would bring upon everyone a mourning over the sinfulness and the wickedness of this nation and in this world. That is what God told the people of Israel to do, <clears throat> to humble their hearts. To call out sin when we see sin. The problem is, is that we're afraid that we're going to be called those hypocritical, judgmental Christians. People see no need for the grace of Jesus Christ if they do not know that they are a sinner before a holy God. There is no need to look to the cross of Jesus for salvation if they're not told that they are sinners. And if you are a follower of Christ today, you've been saved from your sin by the blood shed by Jesus Christ and you rejoice today because he's given you faith to believe as a gift and he hasn't required anything from you. It's his grace. I thought there would at least be an amen there on that. Because we rejoice in the mercy and love of God. Therefore, we are not to be complicit by being silent and we are to call out sinfulness 
and to love other people and to tell them of the cross of Christ, Jesus crucified for our sins and risen again, and that he's returning. And the coming day of the Lord is terrible for all who are far off from Christ. And so I pray that we would be people who repent of our sins and of our silence, and that we would tell people of judgment and salvation. Look at the third and final point here in verses 18 to 32. Again, we see judgment and salvation in the past through the locust in chapter 1 and how God then spares them and restores them. In chapter 2, here we see, as we were just reading there through uh, verses 1 through 17, God's judgment and his salvation because now we come to verse 18 and it says here in verse 18, let me turn back there in Joel chapter 2, then... The Lord became jealous for his land. There's a point at which the people did return to the Lord. They did mourn and weep over their sins. There's a period of time that happens here. And then it says, then the Lord became jealous for his land. We don't know how long this repentance was. But he then, it says, and had pity on his people. And you read in chapter 2 here and you read into chapter 3. The salvation aspect. The blessing upon his people because they turned to him and repented and relented and they returned to the Lord. And so this week as you read, read verses 18 through 27 as you will see that God restores the land. He restores the name of his people as Joel speaks to the nation of Israel. In verse 26 it says, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. A picture of God blessing his people, turning from whatever that wrath because they were repentant of their sins. And then I would like you to draw your attention to verses 28 through 32. We have a text in which the apostle Peter, he quotes on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the people were gathered together in the upper room, it actually talked about men from every nation that were gathered together. And as they begin to um, see these flames of fire, and they began to speak in other known languages that other, they weren't from those places, and their people are wondering, what is going on here? What is happening? And it is the day in which Jesus had promised, and we read in the Gospels in Luke and also in John, in which he told the disciples that when he leaves, the Holy Spirit would come and indwell in God's people. And here we see Peter saying that's what is what is happening. And so we look with me at Joel chapter 2, verse 28. <clears throat> And it shall come to pass afterward. Make sure you highlight and circle that. It's a key word used there. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. The afterward here in Joel, points back to what we were looking at in the past scriptures, specifically in verses 18 through 27, that God then poured out his rain upon the land, that he restored the crops, 
a greater abundance and blessing upon his people. And it's a picture of what Christ told the disciples, that he would pour out his spirit upon his people. This future point to come, this glimpse that it happened on the day of Pentecost, following through when you read the New Testament that not only Jew but Gentile, through faith in Christ alone, are filled with the Holy Spirit. And therefore today, if you are a Christian, a follower of Christ, and have placed your faith alone in Christ alone, you've not only been saved, but the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians, you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption that he has set out for you an inheritance that is great and will not fade away. And he continues on through different letters to the churches that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. We don't go to this place because God lives in this building. We don't go to a temple because God lives in a building. God dwells in the hearts of his people. And we worship him in spirit and in truth. And we rejoice because God has saved us from death and blessed us by living in us. And this picture, which we could just spend weeks even on this passage, which we don't have time for. But we see again God speaking of his judgment and salvation. That God must judge sinfulness because he's holy and he's a just judge. And if he's a just judge and we have sinned, he must then punish all who have sinned against him. But the promise of the Holy Spirit working through his people is a picture of God's power at salvation in which Jesus Christ at the cross bore the wrath of God for your sins. And there he paid the price by shedding his blood and dying so that your sins could be removed by faith in Christ. And Christ died and he was placed in the tomb and on the third day, church, what happened? He arose and he's ascended to heaven and he has promised there is a coming day of the Lord as Joel warns the people of God to turn and relent as we must warn the people in this world who are not followers of Christ Turn to the Lord, repent of your sins, believe in Jesus Christ because the coming day of the Lord is awesome, but it is terrible for all who are far off. And it says here in verse 32 of chapter 2 of Joel, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and, is, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Again, the name of the Lord. We are saved by the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Let the righteous man runs into it and is safe. And then the Apostle Paul quotes Joel in Romans chapter 10, and he says this in verses 12 through 13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Will be saved. 
Acts chapter 4, the apostles state to the religious leaders, it says in verse 10, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Did you catch that? By the name of who? Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Church, we are only saved by faith, in Jesus Christ. No works. Nothing that we can work up in our heart. Nothing that you can do to change your life and make yourself or clean yourself up first before coming to God. He doesn't require that because he does the work. And he says you're only saved by the name of Jesus Christ. Therefore, when you declare this glorious truth to those living in darkness and you speak of their sinfulness before the Lord and they say, what must I do to be saved? Tell them they must believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And trust the work that he will do. As we bring this to a close, church, Jesus speaks repeatedly in the Gospels the day of the Lord when he returns in all of his glory, which will also be a terrible day for all of the wicked, will be on a day that you do not know. You will not be expecting it. You will be completely surprised by it. And I know that we want to talk about signs and when is this going to happen? Did you read the news this week, Pastor? Did you see this? It's coming soon. Jesus said his return is coming soon. That's nothing new, church. We are only to respond by patiently waiting, being ready at his appearing when we see him in the sky. In Joel chapter 3, it speaks of multitudes and multitudes of people in the valley of decision. And a lot of times people want to take Joel chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, and say, oh, that's the decision day that people will decide. No, that's the day of the Lord's decision when he's already decided of his judgment and his wrath coming upon those who are not in Christ. And on that day, Jesus speaks of this in Matthew 7, that it's a horrible day for so many as in Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And if you are here, and today has been a day that the Lord has revealed to you that you've sinned greatly against him. The word of God says that we're born with a sin nature. And all of our sins just continue to add upon that guilt. If you've come to that realization today and you're saying, I, I want the mercy of God, I want the love of God, you need to call out for salvation there's no worded prayer to say. But follow what Scripture says here. Repent of your sins. Turn to Jesus Christ. Believe that He is Lord and Savior and the only way to be saved. And He will do the work of saving, not you. 
And for all of those who are in Christ, let us not forget that on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that we are light in the darkness. We are to live and walk in holiness and be a light in the dark world. He says that you are the salt of the world. Therefore, he calls that we would not be complicit in the sins of the world and sit back silently, but that we would speak of the truth of God's word and declare the gospel to the ends of the earth. What idols do we need to get rid of, church? What are areas of our life that we are silent in that we need to speak of God? Is our greatest idol complacency, being comfortable, living the American life, and dying in our sleep and going to heaven? Is that the idol that we worship? Are we giving excuses? Well, God says the, everyone will have no excuse. They all hear the gospel. I'll just wait for someone else to go. They may call me this or that. They may do this to me. Are those excuses that we use? We are to be the light of Christ. We are to be the salt of the earth. Therefore, let us pray that we would not lose our saltiness. Let us pray that we would be convicted of our sins. Let us rejoice in the coming day of the Lord that through Christ we will not only see him face to face, but we will be changed and we will be with him forever. As the worship team comes forward, I would ask you to do this. I was talking to a friend last night and talking to another person earlier this week that I believe that we must grow in our heart's desire towards prayer and that God is calling us at a time such as this to pour out our hearts before the Lord, to pray that God would call people to him, that he would turn us away from the idols that we worship, that we would have a a growing love for his word and obedience to him. And there would be a rejoicing of seeing people coming to Christ and being baptized gathering with the people of God. So I'd ask you to do what I was praying for myself this week. Lord, help me grow in prayer and how to pray and what to pray for and that we would see the Lord continue to bless his people. Father, as we look at this text which is a heavy text today. Our heart's desire is to be one that's humble before you. One that is not joining in with the sins and the wickedness of this world. One that is not silent, but that we would stand for the cross of Christ, crucified for our sins risen again and returning one day.
Father, would you save any in this room who are far off? And would you bring a stirring of the hearts of your people in this room? Would you lift our heads as we wait for your return? Would you strengthen us and cause us to walk in holiness? That we would be the light of Christ to a dark world and a salt to this earth. In Jesus' name, amen.